This last Wednesday morning, I was over at First Baptist Church. I was standing in an excavated hole outside and in the corner of the building where they're about to cut openings in the side of the building so they can put in a two-story chairlift. And I looked out to the southeast and saw the clouds, and I said, well, it looks like we're going to get that rain that they said was coming because it was the sky was darkening. And in just a couple of a seconds after I said that, the wind gusted and swirled and thick dust and leaves blew around us and the hole that we were standing in. The dust got in my eyes and they started burning and got in my ears and the poor guy I was talking to, he couldn't talk and his cell phone rang and he was, you know, it was just really weird. There was so much dust and, and debris in the air that it was just uh, literally unbearable. And when I got up here, back up to Grace Baptist Church, and I took my cell phone out of my pocket, and there was dust all over my cell phone, and my pocket was full of dirt. <laughs> and so I had to blow out my cell phone. I took that duster, that spray duster, out of the sound cabinet back there and blew it out and got it cleaned out. And, you know, that was the reality of the situation. It was extremely unpleasant. And to use a phrase from the 60s, that was really real, man. Remember when we used to talk that way? And then I sat down and I pulled up stuff, the news on the internet, and I checked out the reality of things. Second healthcare worker in Dallas tests positive for Ebola. On KTVB.com, same-sex marriages begin in Idaho. And the one that really bummed me out, that phrase bummed me out, that comes from the 60s too, the one that really bummed me out was a headline from Houston, Texas, of all places. City of Houston demands pastors turn over their sermons, as well as their emails and their personal correspondence that they've had with their congregation. That's the reality of the world we live in. It's real. Who would have thought in America that a city could subpoena and look for criminal wrongdoing from what is said from the pulpit and what is taught among and, and discussed in emails in the congregation. Who would have thought that serving Christ in the United States of America would be like spiritually standing in a swirling dust and debris of human disease and depravity? Well, the resurrected Jesus Christ knew that was exactly the same kind of reality that his followers would have to face as after he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He was sending them out into a world that would be openly hostile, openly, diametrically opposed to the message that he had commanded them to proclaim. Jesus had told them that he sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves. Seems like we can't even quote Jesus without related to politics in Idaho and the reintroduction of wolves <laughs> into, our, into our land. I don't know about you, but wolves scare me. One time when we were looking for a pastoral position, we were looking at a church in Alaska that was interested in us coming to serve and me being their pastor there. And so as we were researching Alaska, we were watching videos about Alaska and we were reading books and magazine articles about Alaska. And Elizabeth, who was about 13 years old at the time, and she said I could share this story, she fell in love with Alaska. And one evening, the movie White Thang, was on, White Thang was on TV, and of course it's based on the book by Jack London, which is about a three-quarters wolf and one-quarter dog, which was born in the wild. 
And the movie was set in the Yukon during the gold rush, but for me that was close enough to Alaska that we thought that watching the movie might temper some of Elizabeth's enthusiasm for Alaska. We watched the movie that graphically portrayed the harsh realities of the region, and when the movie was over, I asked Elizabeth what she thought. And she said, when we move to Alaska, I want two dogs, a sled, and a wolf puppy. <laughs> the faith of a child. If God is for us, who can be against us? When Jesus sent his followers out, they needed not only the proper message, but they also needed the confidence to proclaim that message, even if it cost them their lives. Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote the book of Acts, needed the proper message, and he needed the confidence to proclaim it. We as well need the proper message, and we need the confidence to proclaim it in the present reality in which we live today. When Luke introduces his letter to Theophilus in the first few verses of the book of Acts, Luke wants us to know that when we obey Jesus Christ, reality is going to clash with reality. Reality is going to clash with reality, and that we must be so convinced of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives and in such a way that the disturbance we make turns the world upside down. G. Campbell Morgan once said, Organized Christianity which fails to make a disturbance is dead. Concerning Morgan's statement, organized Christianity which fails to make a disturbance is dead, Pastor Greg Laurie adds, and frankly, that's what concerns me. We're not making much of a disturbance anymore. We're so worried about fitting in, about relating, about being relevant and cool, Greg Laurie's about my age, so there's the 60s coming in again, cool, that we've forgotten what it is to make a stand for truth. Instead of the church turning the world upside down, my fear is that the world is turning the church upside down." Unquote. In verses 3 through 8 of Acts chapter 2, Luke wants Theophilus, and he wants us as well, to be so convinced of what he calls convincing proofs that like the apostles, we turn our world upside down, beginning in Emmett, New Plymouth, and Horseshoe Bend, Jim County, Payette County. So please turn once again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 at verse 3, the first chapter of Acts, the third verse. Here Luke introduces what he calls convincing proofs. In speaking to the apostles in the third verse of the first chapter, Luke writes, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, the careful historian, Luke, is saying that Christianity isn't just some belief system that asks you to check your brains at the door or subscribe to misguided fairy tales. Christianity is based on documented evidence, on the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Documented evidence that justifies Jesus' claims and promises. Of course, there's an element of faith involved in being a believer, but Luke is saying that our faith is based on clear facts. The Greek word that Luke uses for proofs here is a word that carries the idea of convincing. The King James Version 
renders it infallible proofs. They are infallible, watertight, foolproof. They are convincing. But beginning only after hours, only hours after the event of the resurrection itself, people denied that Jesus rose from the dead. Some immediately claimed that it was an elaborate hoax. The disciples come and stolen the body and hidden it someplace. Others have said that out of all those hundreds of witnesses the Bible speaks about, they experienced some kind of mass simultaneous hallucination, and they never actually saw the risen body. But Luke declares here right off the top, listen to me, I've done primary research on this topic, and I have proof. I have proof. Luke points to two convincing proofs in these first verses of, of Acts chapter 1. The first is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the second is the reality of the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll see the reality of the ascension, which is a third proof. But here we see the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And verse 3 says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. Of course, the suffering referring to the cross. Over a period of 40 days after being raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to his followers on several different occasions. Turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first verse of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In the first four verses here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us what has been called the gospel in a nutshell. Here is the core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 4 of this 15th chapter is the message that turns the world upside down. Beginning at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... This is the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast, the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here it is. Here is the gospel. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And now Paul is going to go and call upon eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who testify to this truth. Verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now Cephas here in the Aramaic means rock. It's the same as Petros. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain till now, but some have fallen asleep. By fallen asleep, he means some have died. More than 500 people at one time. And if you don't believe this, Paul says to the Corinthians, you can go ask them yourself because most of them are still alive. Then, then verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Why the special appearance to James? The James that it's talking about here is not James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. This James is the half-brother of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph. This is one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. We also know Jude, who wrote one of the letters in our Bible, was also one of Jesus' half-brothers. James and Jude would have grown up in the same family as Jesus. How would you like it if one of your brothers, especially your older brother, 
was perfect. <laughs> Never got in trouble unless mom and dad were wrong was without sin. How come Jesus never gets in trouble? I'm sure, you know. And, well, James went on to become an elder of the church in Jerusalem. And when we get to Acts chapter 15, where James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is the James, the, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the Bible. Go ask James, Paul says, and see what he has to say about Jesus. Then verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born... Paul says, he appeared to me also. On the road to Damascus, the risen Savior appeared to Paul, Saul of Tarsus. The word translated untimely born refers to a miscarriage. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was hopefully, hopelessly dead in his trespasses and sin. He was unformed. He was dead. He was useless spiritually. The Greeks used the word as a term of derision. Ectrema, you ectrema. One might say today, you piece of garbage. That's the way they took the term. But the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ came to this piece of garbage by the name of Saul of Tarsus and by the grace of God redeemed him, regenerated him, saved him, called him to proclaim the message that he once tried to destroy Argue that one against Paul. The end result of these appearances by Jesus was that the apostles and the other eyewitnesses were absolutely convinced of the reality of their Lord's physical resurrection. And this assurance gave them boldness to preach the gospel throughout the known world to the very people even who crucified Jesus. At Pentecost when Paul or when Peter preached that first gospel sermon, he said Jesus, whom you crucified. That boldness and the transformation of the apostles and believers from fearful, cowering skeptics to bold, powerful witnesses is a potent proof of the resurrection. Under the stress of torture, under exile, someone might have recanted and say, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We just made it up. But men and women don't die horrible deaths for the sake of a hoax. But not a one of them broke ranks because they could not deny what they knew to be true. Luke explains the reality of the resurrection in two ways. The last part of verse 3, Acts chapter 1, Luke says that Jesus spoke to them. Get back to the right chapter here. Chapter 1, verse 3 appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. After his resurrection, as Jesus appeared to them, he just taught more truths concerning the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which if you checked it out in the Gospels, you'd find that that was Jesus' favorite topic when he taught his disciples. In the parables he taught, often he said, the kingdom of God is like... The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of God is like a child, like a dragnet, like a merchant. And we could go all through those, those parables. In other words, after his resurrection, Jesus continued to teach more of the same message, more of the same truths to those to whom he appeared. And then Luke adds that Jesus ate with them. Now, verse 4 in the New American Standard Bible, it says, gathering them together. 
The word translated gathering there literally means eating with them. I like that translation better because eating with is a better translation because I think it speaks more of the reality of the resurrection. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that first Easter morning, he not only spoke to them, he not only told them all the things about himself, beginning with Moses and and all of the prophets, when he broke the bread and gave thanks, they recognized him. Then he appeared to Peter and the other disciples who had gone fishing. He prepared a sumptuous broiled fish breakfast, ate with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were absolutely convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, who not only spoke to them, but he ate with them. And at least on one occasion, while eating with the disciples, Jesus points out the other reality that Luke wants us to know, that Luke wants us to be convinced of. Verse 4, gathering them together or eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. Luke wants us, like the apostles, to be convinced of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, but he also wants us to be convinced of the reality of the promise. Having received the message and having witnessed the manifestation of the risen Christ, the apostles may have been tempted now to go out and try to do it on their own. This is the key. They were convinced of the resurrection. They were fired up at this point. But Jesus is saying that's not enough. Now, believing in the resurrection is enough for salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's salvation. But it's not enough for service. It's enough for salvation, but not enough for service. Like the apostles, we must be convinced of the resurrection, and we must be convinced of the reality of the promise of the Holy Spirit. That was true in Luke's day, and it's true in our day as well. And it was true many years ago when A.W. Tozier said, If the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, 90% of what they did would come to a halt. But if the Holy Spirit were taken away from today's church, only 10% of what it does would cease. I like those preachers say, somebody say amen. I like on this one, somebody say ouch. (laughs) Somebody say ouch. Are we so dependent upon the Holy Spirit that if he left, what we would do as Grace Baptist Church would, would come to a halt? An old country preacher named Vance Habner once said, we're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within lives that have been ignited by the Spirit of God. And I have one more statement that I found made by Francis Chan. He says, Without the Holy Spirit, people operate on their own strength and only accomplished human-sized results. The world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence of their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. 
And so in verses 5 through 8 of Acts chapter 1, Paul gives us a fourfold characteristic of the reality of the Holy Spirit, of what Jesus calls here the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We come to the first one in verse 5. Jesus commanded his disciples who gathered after dinner. And he says, For John baptized with water, verse 5, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. First of all, Jesus wants us to be convinced of the reality of the coming of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told them to wait. Stick around Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, waiting has to be one of the hardest things to do. Jesus told those who had gathered together, don't go outside the city, don't go anywhere until the promise of the Father has come upon you. Why? Because if you try to do it yourselves without the Holy Spirit, you will make a mess of it. This is essential. You cannot be an effective witness if you are not operating in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you try to do it in your own strength, you're going to mess it up. If you try to do it in your own resources, with your own resources, you'll mess it up. The apostles who gathered with the resurrected Lord were in no doubt fired up. They wanted to go out there. And at this moment in Acts chapter 1, they were gathered there with the resurrected Lord. He had trained them. He had commissioned them to go out, proclaim the message, to do the same kind of work that he had done. Paul, or Jesus even said, they would do greater things that he had done. But if they didn't do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, they'd make a mess of things. Every attempt to advance the cause of Christianity, which, which does not arise out of the power of the Holy Spirit, only destroys the message that God wants to convey. One of my ancestors is King Olaf, the first Christian king of Norway. That's the Viking side of the family. And after becoming Christian, Olaf <laughs> wanted to Christianize his homeland. He wanted to make Norway Christian. And that's a wonderful thing to do, but he wanted to use the sword to do it. Typical Viking. And his theme was, be Christian or die. And Olaf would, would uh, defeat tribal leaders. He would tell them that they needed to convert to Christianity. They needed to be baptized along with their whole tribe, or he would kill them. So there were a lot of baptisms in those days. Looks good on the denominational report. <laughs> Oftentimes, Olaf would capture a tribal lord and he would, he would uh, challenge that tribal lord to a wrestling match. And if, if I beat you in a wrestling match, then you and your whole village have to convert and be baptized. Or he would uh, challenge them to a swim across a river or across a lake. And if Olaf won the swimming race, the entire tribe would have to convert and be baptized. Around our house, one of my sons used to say, I'll swim you for it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there were a lot of baptisms, but there were few, if any, conversions. And it's an extreme example. But any time we try to win the world by operating in the flesh, by using the tactics of the world, we fail miserably and people get hurt in the process. Or what's worse, they believe they are saved when they are not. 
So what did Jesus mean by the promise of the Father? First of all, he meant that the coming of the Holy Spirit would not be ritual, but it'd be reality. John says Jesus baptized with water. That's ritual, a shadow, a picture, a symbol that portrays the reality, but not the reality. But the reality will be the actual Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you. And secondly, Jesus said the coming of the Holy Spirit would not be a program, but power. We see this as verses 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 1. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know. Times are epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now it's understandable that they hoped that the arrival of the kingdom was imminent. They'd been taught about the kingdom. And isn't that one of our great hopes today? Every time we see what's going on in the world, we turn on the news and, and in the Middle East, and we go, isn't this the time of the end? Is this the time uh, of the kingdom? Every one of us yearn for the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. The disciples had hoped for this kingdom since they first joined Jesus. Jesus had taught about the kingdom. They'd experienced a roller coaster road, road of hope and doubt, and, and now they felt, well, maybe the kingdom thing is over. So here's what the Lord Jesus is saying to his disciples and what he says to us, as paraphrased by Greg Laurie again. Jesus is saying, don't be worried about when I am coming. Focus instead on what you are to be doing while you await my coming. Don't concern yourself with the when. It will happen precisely when it's supposed to happen. Just be ready because it could happen any moment. Don't focus on the when, Jesus is saying, Focus on the what. And what is the what? It is proclaiming the message he gave us to proclaim. That's the most important thing. Unquote. And thirdly, Luke shows us the words of Jesus that resurrection power lives from within rather than from without. First part of verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit's present, His leading, His, His might were absolutely essential, essential if the powers to be effective in continuing the unfinished work of Jesus Christ. They'd already experienced His saving, His guiding, His teaching, His miracle working power. Soon they would receive the power they needed for ministry after the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Just a sidelight here, but an important one, because we'll see this as we go through the book of Acts. When does the Holy Spirit come upon us? At the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have all the power that Jesus is talking about here. The word translated power is dunamis. We get the English word dynamite from it. When Alfred Nobel, after whom the Nobel Peace Prize is named, you go, why Peace Prize? Because he was so sorry that he created a substance of such explosive power that he named dynamite that he wished because it had been used for evil purposes that had never been created. But he called this explosive power dunamis, dynamite. And all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have that spiritual dynamic, that power, dynamic power for service, dynamic power for fellowship, dynamic power for witness, dynamic power for using our spiritual gifts. 
We will see example after example of that in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And finally, Jesus wants us to know that the power will result not in propaganda, but in witnessing. Verse 8 again. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus didn't say, you shall be my propagandists, but you shall be my witnesses. As Christians, we are not like salesmen going out to peddle a product. Nor are we recruiters trying to get people to join our religious club. When the church has become those kinds of things, then it becomes a false thing and it's lost its power. But Jesus has a personal note about it here. Basically saying, you will talk about me because you have experienced me. What you talk about is what I have done for you. That is always what a witness does, isn't it? You won't be talking about yourselves, he says. You'll be talking about me. Ray Stedman points out, the mark of the false church is that it loves to talk about itself. These early Christians never witnessed about the church at all. They witnessed about the Lord, what he could do, how he would work, what a fantastic person he is, how amazing was his power in that, in what he could do in human hearts. And Pastor Stedman continues, the 20, 20th century church, he wrote this a few years ago, is too often talking about what the church is, how great it is, what it ought to be doing. It has its eyes focused on itself. But that was not true of the early church. Its eyes were focused on the Lord, and it was a witness to him. And how did that work for them? When reality clashed with reality? When the reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Christ crashed with the reality of this world? Those original 120 disciples who were gathered in that upper room at Pentecost had multiplied and changed the world. They had turned the world upside down. Tertullian was an early church father who wrote 200 years after the birth of the church. And he made this statement about the impact of the gospel in the Roman Empire. And he was writing to a Roman official to... Uh, we use the word apologia, which we have the word apology from it, but it's a defense, as a defense of the gospel, as a defense of the Christians. And, and writing to this Roman official, he says of Christians, we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palaces, the senate, the forum." We have left nothing to you but the temples of your God. Isn't that great? You love that? Tertullian is saying, there is no stone that has been left unturned. There isn't one little crevice or corner where the gospel hasn't invaded your culture. All you have left to do is your empty, void, pagan temples. And as you look back, we see that the Roman Empire eventually crumbled while the message of Jesus Christ reached across the world. Today in Emmett, Jim County, Payette County, Boise County, Horseshoe Bend, 
all of Idaho and beyond, we have the same message and we have the same task before us today. So how are they able to accomplish it? They understood that ministry just wasn't for a few select apostles, just for a few. They understood that ministry was for everybody. Everybody had been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and convinced of the reality of Jesus Christ in their lives and his resurrection, convinced that the Holy Spirit was working in them. Everyone was to go and bring the message to their generation and to their sphere of influence. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we yearn for it. We desire that same kind of dynamic that we see at work in the apostles and in the believers in the early church. Father, we ask that in and by your Holy Spirit that we might be used of you. May we be able to experience the same Holy Spirit power that you want us to experience. And Father, we pray that by our words, by our actions, by our testimony, that we might not leave one stone unturned that in our sphere of influence there won't be one crevice or corner where the gospel has not gone and where we have invaded the reality of the culture around us. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.